Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we welcome Donald A. Barr, who joins us to talk about his new book, Crossing the American Healthcare Chasm, Finding the Path to Bipartisan Collaboration in National Healthcare Policy, new from Johns Hopkins University Press. So Don, if you would start us off by telling a little bit about yourself and how it is that you came to this particular project. Well, I'm one of those guys who's still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, after finishing my medical training, uh, I went and was a rural general practice doctor um, here in California, but uh, uh, about half hour from the closest hospital um, and spent several years doing that. Um, although uh, I had watched Marcus Welby, MD, uh, during the 1950s, and it never dawned on me that Marcus Welby, MD, had no wife and no family, and that's why he was able to kind of be the, the doc 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that didn't work for me. I had a family. So I ended up then shifting and working for Kaiser Permanente uh, for several years, um, and that really made me interested in what's the best way to organize healthcare delivery. Um, that led me to come back while well, continuing to practice medicine and first to get a master's degree in health services research from Stanford. And then I was offered and accepted the opportunity to get a PhD in medical and organizational sociology. So I'm trained in both. Um, and what it did was um, I was uh, invited to teach a class on U.S. healthcare policy uh, in the 1990s at Stanford, and, and I kept my clinical practice, and gradually that morphed over time from full-time clinical practice and one cl- uh, one teaching one class to a full-time academic appointment, teaching and writing um, and uh, practicing medicine just one day a week. Um, I eventually dropped the medical practice about 10 years ago and focused on two things, uh, teaching undergraduates. Um, and then also, uh, it turns out, uh, I, I seem to have a knack for writing textbooks. I was asked to write a textbook about the U.S. healthcare system. Um, I'm working now on the fifth edition of that. I also wrote a textbook about social inequality in health, uh, based upon some of my sociology. And then just um, following the tremendous partisanship that evolved throughout our political and medical system following the passage of the Affordable Care Act um, in 2010, 
um, just made me think, what is going on with our country and our healthcare system? Uh, we have had many opportunities in the past to kind of overcome partisan barriers. Why can't we do it now? And that led me to just dive into this whole issue and really look at what was going on, uh, what was causing this partisanship, this what I call the chasm, um, and uh, what could we do about it? And, and that has resulted in this book. So perfect. So as as you suggest, it seems to me that that the book operates on two levels. First, offering what is, I think, this sort of lovely, comprehensive legislative history of U.S. efforts at making national health policy. And then second, as, as this overview of the patterns of what partisan coalition building and partisan contestation, excuse me, in each instance. Uh, and, you know, you pay particular attention to what has been accomplished in bipartisan fashion in the past and what has not. And you also express some hope that that is both possible and maybe even desirable now and in the future. So I want to work us toward that hopeful take, and in part, because to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure I share it. But before that, why don't we do a little bit of, of laying some groundwork and lay into some of those historical landmarks. And we can't cover it all because you really do cover all of that history from the New Deal era through to the president, present. So why don't we hit a, a few key markers and I'll ask you to tell us what you think people should know about those instances of policymaking and what lessons you think we can take away from them for the present. Um, so why don't we start with, with the making of Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s? How and why did these programs get enacted? Well, we, we have to take that back a little bit because remember when okay. Harry Truman uh, became president, he did offer and proposed and supported a national health care system. And of course, he was accused of uh, uh, pushing uh, communism and socialized medicine. And the American Medical Association was vehemently opposed and had a national campaign. So fast forward, now we're only uh, about 15 years. And then we have Wilbur Mills, a very conservative congressman from Arkansas, who chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, who said, look, we really have people, we have poor people who need health care. We have seniors who need health care. Let's just try and come together and see if we can't work out a situation. And so they negotiated and gave each of the parties something they wanted, which is why we have Medicare Part A and Part B. Um, the people who wanted kind of an, a, a national health system got Medicare Part A, which is seniors get essentially free hospital care. Um, but for Part B, this is those who wanted more of an insurance plan with private insurance. It was really modeled on a private insurance plan where you have to sign up and pay premiums for it. Um, and then for poor people, we'll give them a separate program. And so... Um, Conservatives and liberals, but also the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, they all got something of what they wanted. And so Wilbur Mills was able to uh, come up with what they referred to as a three-layer cake. Uh, layer one, Medicare Part A, layer two, Medicare Part B, and layer three, Medicaid. Um, and everyone was happy. So if Wilbur Mills can do that back then, aren't there people who can do that now? 
So arguably the lesson there is sort of a classic kind of compromise, right? Nobody gets what they want, but everybody gets some of what they want. And that's what, what the sausage making winds up looking like. Or or making three-layered cake looks like. <laughs> or cake instead of sausage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so let's let's flash forward a jump. We'll jump over a lot of history. Uh, what happened with the Clinton administration's effort at at a broader national reform of health policy? Well, they they missed a couple of things. They missed number one the fact that they they had a, uh, a you know they had the Democrats had control of the White House and both houses of Congress, but they only had it for two years. Uh, they didn't think what would happen if if we lose the midterm elections, um, and so they let it go too long. But the other thing is, um, rather than deferring to Congress to actually draft legislation, uh, Bill asked his wife Hillary to convene a task force in the White House and to draft the legislation chapter and verse, and to deliver the finished legislation to Congress to then act upon, but that's not the way Congress works. Congress would like some guiding principles, but Congress will will draft chapter and verse of the text of the law. They do not want to have someone else deliver the text to them. Bill and Hillary did not understand that, and the combination of taking too long and and trying to uh, take over what is basically the responsibility of Congress to draft legislation um, they bumped up against the midterms. They lost. Uh, Newt Gingrich came in, and that was the end of the Clinton health reform. And there was also a fairly conservative, uh, 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 significant effort, excuse me, by by health insurance industries in opposition to that plan as well, correct? Right. Although it was actually the smaller health insurance companies, the right. Harry and Louise ads. I don't know if people remember that uh, about Harry, there must be a better way. They're going to there'll be fifty-two new government bureaucracies. Um, that um, that was actually the, the smaller health insurance companies that were pushing for that. But you're right; it was the insurance industry that really wasn't consulted and was adamantly opposed to this t- type of major reform. Um, so we talked about Medicare Part A and B briefly. Uh, tell us a little bit about Medicare Part C and how we wound up with that. Well, it actually started before the um, George W. Bush administration. There had been the opportunity for health maintenance organizations to um, offer plans for Medicare to contract with Medicare to provide care, uh, combining Part A and Part B. And there was a whole series of complexities, and it looks like it was costing too much. And and the Clinton administration, as part of the Balanced Budget Act of 19, I think it was 1996 or 1997, um, uh, reduced the funding uh, to the private insurers to cover Medicare. George W. Bush wanted really to try and push Medicare into a private market entity rather than a government program. So he got Congress to pass... Um, the law that shifted and created Medicare Part C, now referred to as Medicare Advantage, where private companies could offer the Medicare benefits. Um, and in order to entice private companies to do this, they actually ended up paying them a bonus. It was about a, a 14% bonus. It cost them 14% more to pay for medical care with, with private companies than it did through, through Medicare Part C. 
than it did through Part A and Part B. Um, but that was the idea is to really to bring private uh, insurance companies into the Medicare program to have them offer an alternative to the government administered programs. And and again, sort of returning to, to that secondary theme, what's the what's the story about about partisan cooperation or antagonism here? Well, it was um, th- there were there was bipartisanship to kind of support this idea, although there wasn't full support for this idea of of paying the private insurance companies a bonus to uh, to be in uh, the market. Um, but there was a growing sense uh, among conservatives and Republicans to try and shift Medicare. The, the idea that private entities, private corporations can do things more efficiently than the government can kind of started to take hold. And there are certain people who thought that it's better to have things in the private market than a government program. Uh, and that kind of uh, had support of that. Although I should say that the, that the, the uh, law that created Medicare Part C passed by one single vote in the House because uh, George W. Bush had promised it would not go over a certain budget uh, along with it because there were uh, pharmaceutical coverage as well. But uh, it, 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 it was close, but it passed. And, and, uh, but not everyone liked the idea of paying the premium to, to keep the private insurance companies uh, in the Medicare program. Uh, so you just hinted at it, Don. Tell, tell us a little bit about Medicare Part D now. Well, yeah, that this was this was passed basically the same time that the yep. uh, Medicare Part C, that um, Medicare originally did not cover prescription drugs. Uh, there was a, a short period of time uh, when they tried to uh, change Medicare to cover prescription drugs, but it didn't, didn't work out. Um, but the idea that particularly with the rising cost of prescription drugs nationally, uh, seniors were having a very difficult time paying for their prescription drugs. And the data showed that many seniors would kind of skip doses. They, they would take a 30-day supply of medication and make it last 60 days by taking it every other day because they couldn't afford it. And so there was strong consensus that it should um, instead... Uh, there should be a, a new program that allowed um, <clears throat> seniors to uh, get coverage for prescription drugs, but it was going to be 100% in the private market. It was not going to be Medicare really negotiating with uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. In fact, Medicare was prevented by the, the law uh, from negotiating with pharmaceutical companies for reduced prices. It was going to be all private companies. And so Medicare Part D, uh, the pharmaceutical coverage was now 100% uh, private companies, private entities providing benefits. And they would then be part paid with a premium from the enrollees and a reimbursement from the federal government. But the private companies would administer it. And it, it is that, in your mind, how we explain how we get what is arguably the largest expansion of, of Medicare uh, up until then, driven by a Republican administration. Yes, precisely, precisely. And the whole idea of of uh, expanding the role of private corporations and trying to limit the federal government's uh, capacity to uh, uh, um, kind of guide the market uh, 
was a very substantial change. Right. And there, there was, I mean, some bipartisan support for this, but not a whole lot of Democrats, if memory serves, signed on to this, right? right? A dozen right. plus? That's particularly with the idea that the Medicare was prohibited from pay, uh, negotiating for drug prices. That was not very right. popular among Democrats at all. Correct. Um, and then you also, I think, referenced this earlier a little bit, uh, that, 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 that there was basically uh, that, how do we... Congress was lied to about the projected costs for this, and there was some trickery around the Congressional Budget right. Office score, yeah, right? The thing that we came to call the donut hole, right? Right, and and uh, yeah, that uh, the donut hole is a little bit complex, but it was that that um, uh, President Bush had promised that it would not go over, I believe, it was four hundred million dollars, like um, over a period of time, billion. Uh, 400, I'm sorry, $400 billion over a period of time. And uh, there actually was someone in the administration who had kind of said, excuse me, Mr. President, uh, I think it's going to cost $600 billion. And, and the president said, keep, keep your mouth shut. If you, if you <laughs> let that leak out to Congress, you're out of here. And um, so they actually knew and they were not being honest with Congress. So let's let's again jumping over all kinds of interesting hi history, especially around the children's health insurance program. Let's let's look at the Affordable Care Act. Um, so tell us again what you think. Uh, uh, thinking about sort of partisan competition here, uh, what we should know about the Affordable Care Act, the enactment of it, and then we will turn our attention in a minute to efforts to repeal and replace. So um, after the uh, the. the the Bush administration, there was a continually growing number of Americans who did not have health insurance. The number of uninsured were continuing to grow. And there was obvious uh, another obvious thing, which there are a lot of people who had health insurance, but it was so expensive, uh, even if it was through their employment, that they often couldn't afford it. And then the, this, the, the tens of millions of people who who weren't able to get access to health care, there was a strong national consensus that we need to do something to improve access to affordable health insurance and affordable health care nationally. Um, and then so you have the election of President Obama with uh, a Democrat-controlled uh, both the House and the Senate in a full 60 votes in the Senate, giving President Obama uh, the sense that this is this is a an opportunity to finally pass National Health Care Act of some sort, um, and Obama, Pre President Obama, took um, his uh, lessons from the failed Clinton efforts. He uh, outlined some principles that he wanted to include, but he said, "I'm leaving it up to Congress." to uh, draft this legislation, and I'm going to trust <clears throat> my colleagues in Congress to work together to do this. And, and that's precisely what happened, particularly in the Senate, with the Senate Finance Committee. Um, and they got um, several senators from the Republican and the Democratic Party on the Finance Committee. Um, they held bipartisan forums. And let's 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 talk to people, talk to experts, talk to policy advisors, and figure out what we can do here. And then they formed what was called the Gang of Six, uh, three Republican senators and three Democratic senators who really worked 
to closely in a bipartisan fashion to draft legislation early in the Obama administration, so now we're in 2009, to uh, pass a major national health care. Um, and uh, that bipartisanship, um, though, with the advent of the Tea Party, uh, <clears throat> after several months of close collaboration over the summer of 2009 is when the Tea Party really started to um, influence uh, people in the House and the Senate, and many Republicans started then backing away from this and saying, this is a government takeover of health care. We do not want it. Um, the legislation was there. The Democrats and President Obama continued to try and work collaboratively, but by the fall, it became clear that um, the Republicans were not going to support it at all. There was this kind of a, a schism, is what I called it at that point. It's simply a split um, <clears throat> on two different sides. And so the, the question was, do we try, we, the Democrats, try and pass this on our own? We have tried and tried and tried to get collaboration and cooperation with Republicans in the House and in the Senate. And it, they are just saying, we're, there's no way we're going to collaborate. Do we try and pass it on our own? The, with the, um, that, and, and so they were able to do that. Recall that uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, who ironically had been one of the strongest proponents of uh, a national health care plan since the 1970s, um, died of uh, brain cancer and had a Democrat appointed tempor uh, temporarily to take his place. So the Democrats had the capacity in the Senate and they passed uh, with 60 votes to overcome a filibuster by the Republicans. They had it to pass it. Um, but they lost that 60 votes with a special election. So now they only had 59 votes and they could not get a single Republican senator to work with them. So having passed it, they, there was only one thing to do, and that was to have the House approve the Senate version, even though that was bypassing the, the traditional um, uh, co conference committee where you get a, a one bill in the House, one bill in the Senate. You get a conference committee together. You, you hash out the, the differences, come up with one bill, take it back to the House and Senate, um, and pass it. That wasn't going to work because there was not a single Republican who would support it. So they had to then pass it through the House and then pass a reconciliation bill um, on, the, on certain budgetary aspects to incorporate some of the changes the House Democrats wanted to make. And that just infuriated the Republicans, the fact that they did it in what the Republicans perceived as kind of a backhanded way through by passing a bill and then amending it through reconciliation rather than through a full vote. So now you have the, in March of 2010, you have the, the law passed and signed by President Obama, but the um, within a day or two, uh, a lawsuit was, was filed uh, call, calling the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. 
So, and I, I want to turn both to the court cases and to the legislative efforts at repeal. But before we do, so I think I know your answer to this question, but I will ask it. Do, given what we now know, the history that just you've recounted, do you think it was foolish for the Democrats to undertake that bipartisan effort in the first place? Should they have seen that there was no space for Republican support and built policy within their own coalition instead of trying to appeal to people by altering policy whose votes they were never going to get? No, I think moving an ep- their effort into a bipartisan approach was the right approach because particularly when you have to work with people again and again and again over time. If you push things through, you jam it down their throat, they are going to resent it uh, for a long time to come. And so the idea of, of a bipartisan approach is a much more stable approach in the long term. I think that was the correct thing to do. So let's now turn to, to both court uh, uh, what the court winds up doing in order to that winds up altering the Affordable Care Act, and then we'll look at legislative efforts. So, what happens in the courts to the Affordable well, the, Care Act? Well, the, uh, the the two issue, two big issues were was it um, the, the, a key aspect of the Affordable Care Act was the individual mandate that every individual must have health insurance, unless of course they were too poor to afford it. Every individual must have health insurance. And if they don't, then they pay a penalty to the IRS. Um, And the lawsuit said that the Constitution does not allow you to tell people what to do regarding health insurance. Uh, The second issue was um, the fact that the Affordable Care Act said we're massively expanding Medicaid. Um, Any state that doesn't elect to expand their Medicaid to to, to poor people will lose their funding for their previous Medicaid program. And the lawsuit was that that is overly coercive and not allowed under the Constitution. And the Supreme Court agreed on the Medicaid and said that's correct. States must have the option to expand Medicaid. But then um, the the, uh, court said, well, technically you're correct. You can't force someone to have health insurance, but you certainly can. Uh, assess a tax penalty for not having health insurance. Um, And even though it's called a penalty, a tax by any other name is still a tax. So the court said you can uh, um, assess a tax penalty for not having health insurance, but you can't force people to expand Medicaid. So that pretty much uh, allowed the Affordable Care Act to go forward with the exception that uh, only certain states wanted to cover all poor people in their state. And so uh, why don't we continue with the court? So those cases have continued, right? Sort of what's, what's, what, what, what have been the, 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 the important efforts to undermine or entirely unravel the Affordable Care Act since then? Well, uh, of course, um, you know, we we would have the next. The, the, there were a couple other Supreme Court cases weren't weren't kind of weren't that important. One one was the idea right. of of uh, could you use the premium tax credits uh, in both the uh, 
state exchanges and the federal healthcare.gov exchange? And, and the answer was, yes, you can. Um, and then um, based upon this court decision that you can't require someone to have health insurance, but you can penalize them if they don't have it. In the, Once President Trump was elected and the Republicans had control of both the House and the Senate, using the reconciliation process, because they did not have a filibuster-proof majority, um, in, in 2017, as part of their tax reform, they revoked the uh, tax penalty for not having health insurance. So now, and this is uh, a case filed in Texas, uh, by the state of Texas and some individuals in Texas saying, aha, we got you now. The court has already said you can't uh, require someone to have health insurance. You can tax them, but the tax is gone, but you still have the mandate. Therefore, it's unconstitutional, and therefore the entire health um, Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, and therefore we are suing you. And that's exactly what the, there's a particular district court judge in Texas who has a history of, of being sympathetic to very conservative causes, and they chose his court to file it in. And he indeed uh, said that, that yes, the, uh, this, the Affordable Care Act is now unconstitutional because the mandate's there. The appeals court said, well, he was right. It, the mandate is not constitutional, but uh, whether it invalidates the entire, entire Affordable Care Act, we're, we're going to ask him to, what they said in their judgment, to use a finer tooth comb to determine what parts of the Affordable Care Act would be invalid uh, based upon this uh, um, individual mandate being unconstitutional. And that, of course, was the, the uh, court, the case that finally made it to the Supreme Court. And um, the court had heard arguments before I actually published the, uh, the book, the, submitted the book manuscript. Um, and we didn't know, but we now know that uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, recently uh, has said that this the this case has no standing that uh, no one was really harmed and therefore so for the third time the Affordable Care Act was upheld at the Supreme Court um, and there's kind of a sense that third time's a charm uh, I think that 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 the Supreme Court justices were getting a little tired of hearing uh, um, cases uh, uh, accusing the Affordable Care Act of being unconstitutional so there seems to be at least some sense that uh, that issue is now settled. Uh, the act is not unconstitutional, um, but there was a serious effort to to invalidate the law through these lawsuits. And I, you know, I think a a, a fair characterization of consensus among constitutional law scholars and and health law experts is that for the most part, those were pretty bad faith arguments and not especially well-rooted, right? That that was revealing more a partisan effort rather than coherent legal doctrine. And I wonder if, and I'll leave my editorializing there for a second and ask you to sort of pick up from there and then talk about the congressional efforts to unwind right, the affordable, right. so, the Republican congressional well, efforts. It's um, it's, as soon right? as the Republicans took over the House in, in, uh, in the uh, midterm elections in 2010, uh, the House started uh, to pass legislation to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I think they passed like 35 repeal bills in the first year or something like that. Of course, total of what, 51 or 52 yeah, overall, something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this dozens of, of uh, bills that the House passed. Now, of course, the Democrats held the Senate, and so the Senate never approved them. And then in 2014, 
the Republicans took over the Senate as well as the House, still had a President Obama for two more years. And now you had the um, House and the Senate uh, passing and approving legislation to, to re- repeal the Affordable Care Act. President Obama vetoed it, and it didn't go anywhere. Said, so oh my goodness, what's going to happen with the 2016 elections and with President Trump? In fact, one of his first acts was the, one of his first executive acts after his election in, 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 in inauguration in 2017 was to say, I want this um, Affordable Care Act repealed and revoked. So let's do it now. Um, so he made it clear that he, he wanted it out of there. And so the Congress began the process, uh, given their majorities. Now they had to use the reconciliation process because of the, uh, they did not have a, a filibuster-proof majority. So they started and they passed a repeal bill in the House uh, in the spring of 2017. It got to the Senate. Um, and it was clear, and in fact, it kind of came up for a vote, and, and it, it actually did not have enough votes to pass by a long shot. And so the Republicans in the Senate kind of crafted their own somewhat um, watered-down repeal legislation, saying we really got to get rid of this. Um, and so that's the, the, the vote where the John McCain, who ironically also was dying from brain cancer, uh, came in to the Senate floor and put his final no vote with his thumbs down gesturing, um, leading that the Republicans simply did not have the votes, even with majorities in both houses and a, and a Republican president, the Republicans did not have the votes to repeal even portions of the Affordable Care Act. The law, the Republican uh, repeal efforts went went down, and um, it was clear that they were not going to be able to do that. Um, and, and and worth, I think, pointing out that even that watered-down Senate bill would have cost more than the status quo, and costs would have increased and would have knocked, I forget what the number is for that final version, but 10 million, 15 million people would have lost coverage. Yes, like I, think, yeah, I, think, I think that's what the Congressional Budget Office was projecting that uh, millions of people would have lost coverage. Yeah, yeah. So, so Don, given all, as we work our way toward toward finishing our conversation here in hopes that people will pick up the book to get the richer richer history of all of this, um, given the history that you have just recounted, what on earth gives you hope that there is space for meaningful bipartisan cooperation in health policy? Well, it's because there, I sincerely believe, I, I seriously believe uh, that there are people who really care about this country, and they are there are those people in both parties in Congress. Um, and my sense is that um, there are people who would actually be open to talking to someone from the other party, just to say, "Well, let's just talk to see." what we could come up with to see if there's anything we agree on at all. Um, I really believe that there are those people who that have that type of commitment in Congress in both houses. And um, my sense is that if those people will just get together and try and find a way to talk to each other and meet with each other, 
um, that you know they they have been so deeply divided over these last several years to say let's let's just let's try and talk and this is why I use the metaphor of a bridge that let's try and bridge this chasm that has divided us for several years now um, and rather than building a golden gate bridge across the chasm let's just do a basic and that's where I use the metaphor of the rope bridge. Let's just build this bridge ourselves and let's find a way to meet in the middle and talk because that way we can talk to each other. And it doesn't have to be everyone, but a group of us can talk to each other and see, isn't there something we can agree on that we both support that will help people rather than hurt people? You're listening to the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Donald A. Barr, who's been talking about his new book, Crossing the American Healthcare Chasm, Finding the Path to Bipartisan Collaboration in National Healthcare Policy from Johns Hopkins University Press. Don, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me.